Thank you, Gary. Um, now, if you would like to have a, an outline or if you would like to have a transcript, there is both up the back. So what might be easiest is if you just stick your hand up and, and our, our friendly ushers will deliver um, the one of your request as you do that. Now, we're going to be looking at chapters 18 and 19 today. We're going to be looking at two chapters. Um, and, uh, and so before we do, let me pray for us because this, um, this is a pretty heavy piece of scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, that you tell us the truth, that you do not veil challenging news um, and you certainly do reveal the wonderful news. Uh, Father, we pray that we might hear both this morning and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two worlds and Christians live in both of them. Of course, one, of course, is the, is the fallen world, the world that's rebelled against its creator, that is destined for death and destruction under the judgment of God. And then there's the other world, and that world is the new creation, that even now God is redeeming for himself by his son, Jesus Christ, a, a, a creation that is destined for eternal life under the blessing of God. Now, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.17, says that if anyone is in Christ, they are the new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. When you turn to Jesus Christ, you no longer belong to that first world. In other words, you're part of the second. But Christians live in both of them. And there is, I think it's fair to say, not a believer on the face of this earth that does not feel the tension of that clash between living in two worlds. How do you live in one and love the people in it while belonging to the other? That is what we're going to explore today. You see, in these two chapters, we're given two parallel stories of two men, Abraham and his nephew Lot. Both of these men, the New Testament describes for us as being righteous. Both of them are worshippers of the Lord, of Yahweh. But one of them was the receiver of the Lord's promises, is part of his covenant, and the other was not. One of them lived trusting in the Lord's promises, but the other trusted more in what his eyes told him. They had two contrasting ways of interacting with the world, in other words. And today we're going to see where those two tendencies lead them. Now, these two chapters, chapters 18 and chapter 19, are meant to be compared to one another. Just have a look at the table on the screen here and see how many features these two chapters have in common. So, Abraham looks up, sees the men at his entry to his tent. Lot looks up, sees the men at the entry to the city. Abraham bows down to worship. Lot bows down in worship. Abraham eagerly offers hospitality. Lot eagerly offers hospitality. Abraham intercedes with angels of, of Yahweh on behalf of Sodom. And Lot intercedes for Sodom on behalf of the angels of Yahweh. Abraham challenges God on judging the righteous. The men of Sodom, um, Sodom challenge Lot for judging their wickedness. Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughs, it's the Isaac word about God's promises of a son. Lot's sons-in-law laugh, the Isaac word about God's promises to, the, to judge. 
Abraham haggles with God over Sodom, Lot haggles with God to stay in the valley. You're meant to look at these two side by side and compare and contrast, it's designed to do that. We have the stories of two practically brothers whose very similarities serve to highlight their two very different ways of approaching the world. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at both men's stories and as we do so, we're going to ask ourselves, and I think we will be compelled to, as we look at them, to say, what is God showing me as somebody who lives in both worlds? Now, we're more familiar with what's been going on with Abraham, and so I'm going to put Abraham to the side for a moment and we'll deal with Lot first. You see, while the story of Abraham has been proceeding, another story has also been taking shape. It began in chapter 13, after Abraham and his entourage had returned from Egypt um, with all of the riches that Pharaoh had provided for them. Abraham's people and Lot's people start to quarrel and so Abraham suggests that they separate in order to keep the peace. And the key verses are chapter 13, verses 10 to 13. See, Lot chooses the choicest part of the land that he could see, the Jordan Valley looking south to a place called Zoar, remember that name. Now, Lot thinks the land is magnificent, it's like the Garden of Eden itself, but Lot's eyes had deceived him, it was nothing like that. The reality was, he's about to set up residence in hell. The writer of Genesis gives us a few editorial remarks that I've highlighted up there. See, far from being the Garden of the Lord, Lot was choosing to make his home among men whose wickedness against the Lord was so great that they were destined for destruction. Well, the story builds further in chapter 14, with the battle between the kings. Where did Lot's vision of this beautiful land lead him? To captivity, to the need for Abraham to rescue him. And again, we're given reminders of Sodom and Gomorrah's wickednesses. The king of Sodom's name means, Bera, means by evil. <laughs> That's what his name means. And the king of Gomorrah's name, Bersha, means by wickedness. That's how the kingdoms have been built, in other words. And on top of that, Abraham swears that he wouldn't touch a thing that comes from the king of Sodom's hand. Not a thong from his sandal would Abraham deign to touch. Abraham wants nothing to do with him. This has just got warning signs all over it, doesn't it? Well, the drama begins in earnest in the second half of chapter 18. So, God sends three messengers to Abraham. Now, first they're there in the first part of chapter 18 to tell Sarah that she's going to have a child within the year. But they've also got a second task to attend to. Now, we're going to have a look at, a closer look at this part a little bit later on in the talk... But this aspect of their mission is far less joyous than telling somebody that they're going to have a child. It couldn't be more different, really. See, the outcry now against Sodom and its evil is so bad that it needs to be seen firsthand. And so the two of them head down, leave Abraham and go down to the valley below. And that's where they meet Lot. Now, in chapter 14... We were told that Lot pitched his tent 
You know, they were nomads, right? They were wandering around, they lived in tents. He pitched his tent near Sodom. Now have a look where he is at the beginning of chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. That's an important detail. Now, perhaps Uncle Abraham's um, defeat of all of those kings had gotten Lot some status. Because you see, the gate of the city in the ancient world was where the elders sat. It was a place of dignity and honour. This is clearly saying that Lot has a place has been accepted as part of Sodom society. In fact, we soon find out that he wasn't a nomad living in a tent at all now, that he's now got a house in the city. Sodom was home. Well, Lot welcomes the men in. But we sense that there is something ominous behind his eagerness. You see, he welcomes them just as Abraham did earlier, but when they say, no, that's okay, we'll go up and stay in the, in the you know, um, uh, courtyard of the city, basically, we'll sleep, sleep in the town square, Lot starts to get pushy. Verse 3, but he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Bread without yeast is bread made in haste. There's this slightly desperate tone to his hospitality and we immediately find out why because Lot knows the city that he's living in. Look at verses 4 and 5, this is the stuff that doesn't turn up in the kids talk. Before they had gone to bed all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now, put yourself in that house. Can you imagine how terrifying? I take it you could. How terrifying this must have been. These cities weren't massive urban sprawls like Sydney. They were packed close. And all men of all ages seemed to be gathered outside your house, demanding the right to rape your guests. Now, clearly, this is actually what Lot had feared might happen. Somehow he knew that Sodom was just this bad. You know, in 2 Peter, we're told that Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Now, I think given what happens later, it's just as well that Peter tells us that. It's good to have that reminder because you're not going to think that of him a bit later on. He may have been righteous. The thing is, though, his choices were worldly. Sodom was the place that Lot chose to live in. This was the place that his eyes thought were like the Garden of the Lord. But foolishly, he didn't move away. He didn't stay in his tents, he moved in. He willingly entered that world and despite the distress that it caused him, it started to compromise him. He soon finds himself on the horns of a dilemma with seemingly only desperate and grotesque choices before him. 
Look at verses 6 to 8. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. You can guess why. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with or literally known a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. He intercedes for the men, but in the process, he betrays his own daughters. Actually, do you know what he says? He says, do with them what is good in your eyes. There are those eyes again. Lot's own moral compass has been thrown, hasn't it? You know, to violate the rules of hospitality and protection in such cultures was one of the highest disgraces. It's no surprise that Lot would would be horrified at the thought that this was being asked of him. But so, even in those cultures, would offering your daughters to the mob to be violated. It may have been a desperate gesture from a terrified man who was just grasping at some way of appeasing the crowd, but it doesn't excuse it. And it doesn't work. See, that's the thing about the wicked. They're happy for you to hang out with them and maybe even pretend to honour you while you're doing that and you're doing the right thing by them. But once you start to challenge them, they will not thank you for it. Verse 9, get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. And so what the angels do is they grab Lot and they pull him inside and they close the door. Then they strike the men outside with blindness so that they're left grasping around. The men outside are blind, but the men inside have seen plenty. And so they tell Lot what is going to happen. Verse 12, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here. Because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And what characterises the next few verses, however, is remarkable reluctance. See, what's happened to Lot? He, he goes outside again, yes, to plead with his sons-in-law to flee with him. Now, is it just me? Or are you also wondering what those sons-in-law are doing outside in the street? Given that all of the men of the city, we're told, young and old, were part of the mob. Well, you know what? They think it's a big joke. They laugh and, and they stay. But again, the angels plead with Lot. Dawn's approaching. Get out now. And yet still, Lot hesitates. He just kind of doesn't want to leave. He knows this place is appalling. He knows that it's wicked. He's tormented in his righteous soul about it all. The Holy Spirit through Peter tells us. It's all about to be destroyed and he knows all this and he still hesitates. 
See, he's made Sodom his home and it's hard to leave behind. In fact, the angels, again, have to forcibly drag him out of the city. As soon as they'd brought them out, verse 17, one of them said, flee for your lives, again, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Do you hear the urgency? And yet again, Lot pleads, He haggles, now is the time he chooses to haggle, are you kidding me? He haggles to be allowed to stay in the valley, just the very edge of it. Remember before he said he looked at the valley all the way up until Zor and he kind of liked it? Look, he just wants to stay right on the very edge rather than flee to the mountains. And amazingly, the angels allow it. And then the destruction begins and the Lord sends fire and sulphur and burns the valley to a crisp. Well, you know the story, Lot's wife's heart was in Sodom. She ignores the angel's warning, she looks behind her and she's turned into a pillar of salt. By the end, the man whose eyes coveted the wealth of the plain, who moved from his tent into the city and made it his home, finds himself driven out of the promised land entirely, hiding out in a cave in the hills, and it's only him and his two daughters. And the last we see of Lot in the book of Genesis is in a scene of tragic irony. Some might call it poetic justice. I think it's not. It's it's tragic irony. In a perverse parody of the promise of Isaac to elderly Abraham and Sarah, Lot's daughters fear a childless future too, now that their fiancés are dead and their father is old. And so they conspire to fall pregnant by getting their elderly father drunk and sleeping with him to preserve their family line. And so the man who was willing to hand over his two daughters, who had literally not known a man, to be used by the crowd is himself used by them And twice we're told that he did not know that they were doing it. Lot's story is a tragedy that's been building for six chapters. And his decision to be a part of Sodom for the prosperity that it offered corrupted him and destroyed his family. But Genesis 19 isn't about Lot. Lot is the cautionary tale that we learn along the journey. The main story is about the Lord showing Abraham the ways of judgment. Look at how the Sodom and Gomorrah story begins. Let's go back to chapter 18 again. Abraham, he's been the consummate host, but now the meal is over. Look at verse 16 of chapter 18. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. See, Abraham is the Lord's man. A man destined to be great. A man whose role it will be to bring blessing his descendants anyway, to all of the nations. 
But now we get a window into how he is to do this. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And what is the way of the Lord? By doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So, what's he promised him? That he would be blessing, bring blessing to all the nations. Blessing is going to come to all nations on earth by his descendants keeping Yahweh's way and doing what is right and just. The key to the world being blessed will be God enacting his righteousness and his justice through the descendants of Abraham. And so to pass that on, to direct his children and their descendants after them, that that might happen. So to do that, Abraham needs to be shown what Yahweh's justice looks like. So now let's have a look at the story from the Lord's perspective. We're going to learn seven things about Yahweh's justice. First, the care of Yahweh's judgment. The Lord judges... But the Lord cares. Look at verse eight, chapter 18, verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. All right, the, the, it literally begins with there's no the outcry is how it starts. He hears the outcry of those who have suffered under their evil. He's, he's heard the outrage at their wickedness and corruption. Now, that's an important reality to grasp when we think about God's justice. Imagine a world, we heard about this earlier when Mike preached to us um, in, in spring, imagine a world where God, the God in charge of it doesn't listen, where He doesn't listen to our cries, He doesn't see the corruption, He ignores the depravity and He doesn't hold to account. The Lord's driven to act against human wickedness because He loves humanity and He cares for us and He's going to judge people for the evil that they've done because He cares. But we see the second aspect of God's judgment in those very same verses. You also see the fairness of Yahweh's judgment. Of course, God knew precisely what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's nothing He doesn't know. Just like he knew precisely what people were attempting to do in the Tower of Babel, but in both cases, what does he do? He goes down and has a look. He goes to see it firsthand through his angels, if it is as bad as what he's heard. And note that he sends two witnesses and not just one. This is what will be a mainstay of Israel's justice. Accusations were not to be entertained and and judgment carried out on the basis of one witness but required two or more in order to enact justice. In other words, God's justice isn't hasty and it is not impulsive. His justice is based on knowledge and evidence and testimony. He is fair, he is always fair. But then we get to that great haggling moment. Abraham's haggling moment at the end of chapter 18. Here you see the grace of Yahweh's judgment, that he's gracious, he's not excessive. 
Verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, no doubt Abraham's concern here is particularly for Lot and his family because he knows they're down there. But nonetheless, his appeal shows an understanding that justice doesn't condemn the innocent along with the guilty just because they're next to each other. Justice doesn't throw an indiscriminate blanket of condemnation over everybody just because many are doing what is wrong. And he's eager to remind the Lord of this. God is the judge of the earth. Surely he is going to be the exemplary judge. Now, notice that it's the Lord that begins the haggling process. His starting figure seems pretty generous. Verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Now, we don't know the population of Sodom, but it would have at least been in the hundreds. So God is saying the majority might be profoundly evil, such that their outcry has heard me, but I will have mercy on them all if, if just 50 righteous are there. Well, you know from the reading earlier where this goes, right? Abraham is emboldened by this concession and he drives down the price. But here's the thing to notice. Abraham is sweating bullets, right? For daring to keep asking and pushing God to to spare the place for fewer and fewer people. He fears that the Lord's anger might come his way for being so bold as to plead for the people of Sodom. And yet, what does the Lord do each time? He goes, all right, sure. Until I finally get to the figure of just 10 and Abraham stops asking. It doesn't really sound like Yahweh was fighting Abraham on this one, does it? That's because Abraham's merciful heart isn't a patch on Yahweh's merciful heart. You know, the very first example of intercession in the whole Bible is right here. And Yahweh says the equivalent of, bring it on, I'm happy to hear it. Come to me with this all day long. And as Christians, does that surprise you? No, it doesn't, does it? And nor would it have surprised an Israelite who was hearing it either. For the whole of the Scriptures... God continually shows His amazing grace and His willingness to have a mediator to plead on behalf of the wicked. Well, as we've already seen, the men make it down to Sodom and we see the tragic reality. The God who is willing to spare the entire city and no doubt the cities around it for just 10 righteous people couldn't find that many. Verse 4, before they'd gone to bed of chapter 19, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Did you hear the emphasis there? All of them. Apart from Lot, there was no one righteous, not even one. 
the Lord went down to see if it was bad as the outcry and it was. See, when the Lord judges, that judgment is deserved. The Lord witnesses, he experiences and he confirms his verdict. The judge of all the earth will do right. God may be reluctant to condemn, but he will do it. And so we see the resolve of Yahweh's judgment. Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. What God says he will do, brothers and sisters, he will do. It's a warning not to be laughed at, like Lot's sons and daughters did, sons-in-law, I beg your pardon, did. It's a warning not to hesitate in light of, like Lot did. And it's a warning not to ignore, presuming that you're safe, like Lot's wife did. The whole tone of chapter 19 is urgent, it is tense, it is full of pleading and persuading and fleeing. And yet, even with the decision made, you still see the patience of Yahweh's judgment. The angels tell Lot to go out and gather any who are his. They repeatedly warn Lot and his family that they need to act. And when Lot hesitates, they physically drag him out of the city. They graciously listen when Lot pleads with them to be allowed to be stayed in Zor, allowing him to go there. But notice their words in verse 22. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. The Lord's determined to save Lot and to hold off his judgment until he does. In fact, this is the very point that Peter was making after speaking about how the Lord rescued the righteous Lot. This is in 2 Peter 2, chapter 9, verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for judgment, punishment on the day of judgment. And of course, the seventh and final aspect of Yahweh's judgment in this passage is its terror. God's justice is because He cares and it is gracious and it is fair and it is patient and it is righteous but it is thorough and it is terrifying. Then the Lord rained down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens and thus He overthrew those cities and the entire plain destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. In other words, his patience didn't last forever. The day came and it came quickly. And in an instant, the judgment of Yahweh fell and none could endure it, except Lot and his daughters and the whole town of Zoar. And why? because of Yahweh's justice and the intercession of Abraham appealing to his mercy. And how does the story end? Verses 27 to 29. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah 
toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke arising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. And so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. It wasn't Lot's righteousness that saved him, it was Abraham's intercession on his behalf, the one who, to whom the promise was given. And so because he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived, that's what Abraham needed to witness. The account ends with the whole thing being witnessed by the one that God planned to reveal it to from the beginning. The one whose story is the main story. To the one who needed to teach his descendants of Yahweh's justice and his grace. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah are used throughout the Bible very clearly as a warning of God's judgment on the wicked. It's what the Old Testament prophets used it for. It's what Jesus used the story for. It's what the apostles used the story for. Sodom and Gomorrah were sin writ large and so were judgment writ large. A case study locked in history of the terror of God's judgment that will befall all who sin against him. Let me say gently, but with utmost seriousness, if you are someone listening today who has not yet turned from your sin, has not yet put your trust in Jesus, this is a taste of what is coming. Our sin has consequences. Your sin has consequences. Please heed the warning that is in this passage and flee to Jesus. Don't wait a day longer, please. Because there is a rescue and the rescue is seen at the cross where Jesus died for you facing the justice of God upon your sin so that we might enjoy that same God's grace, mercy and forgiveness. We can know God's blessing because of the righteous descendant of Abraham who ever lives and pleads for us, our great intercessor. But for the rest of us, remember the question that I asked earlier. As you live in two worlds, what has God shown to you today? What has His Holy Spirit prompted you to reflect upon? Is it Abraham's story or Lot's story that particularly is the message that you need to pay attention to today? Or is it both? See, Lot's story shows the dangers of compromise. It exposes the danger and consequences of the corrupt move from next to Sodom to into Sodom. Consequences that corrupted Lot personally, although he escaped, but also significantly corrupted his family as well. The New Testament teaches us to stay in our tents, I guess you could say. Be next to but not in. 
interact with, but don't be a part of. We are to love those who are in this world and belong to it, but we are called to be holy and blameless, understanding that where we truly belong is not where we currently reside. We must not let the comforts of this life, we must not let the fleeting rewards blind us to the one future, to to its destiny, or cause us actually to forget and despise our own. Come out of her, my people, don't share her fate. But then there's Abraham's story. We as Christians are not smug isolationists sitting on the side while the unredeemed cruise towards destruction. We're not just aliens, but in our interactions with the world around us, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are priests. We are intercessors. We are heralds of the good news of God's grace. Let me finish with 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, Live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelieving world, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen.